Um, Shall we just pray before we get going? Yeah, Lord Jesus, um, we just thank you so much that you're here. Lord, we thank you for your presence. And we thank you that you speak to us. And Lord, just as we come now to look at your word, we pray that, um, Lord, that you would just be really specific with us. Lord, that you would be speaking to each of us personally. And that um, we would be able to just fix our hearts and our minds on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, okay, so um, really I just wanted to start by saying how encouraged I've been. Um, Just as we've started our series on creating a supernatural culture, I just have been really excited um, to think about what it looks like for us to be um, a taste of heaven, literally the dwelling place of God on earth, and a place where God's power is evident. Um, And really, I guess my hope for what I'm sharing today um, is that we'll be able to engage our hearts in that and in this whole area of cultivating um, a supernatural culture within Jubilee. And obviously there's so much to be said about Christ and his kingdom, um, but I really feel like God's saying, start with the heart. And it starts with us and God, doesn't it? If we're praying for his kingdom to come on earth as in heaven, then we need to know the king of the kingdom. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that we can't be lukewarm about Jesus. Jesus must have our whole hearts. And it's always been God's intention for us to belong to him alone and for us to sort of operate freely from all the trappings and distractions um, of the world. We know, don't we, that we can't have one foot in the world um, and one in the kingdom. And yet, I think often inadvertently, we can end up mixing some of the culture of the world in with Christ and his values. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And so I hope that this talk will fit um, amongst, I guess, the backdrop um, of our series of creating a supernatural culture as we uh, explore together um, and try and expose some of the cultural strongholds that can divide our hearts and stop us from being wholehearted for Christ and his kingdom. And the passage that God's put on my heart um, is in Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, just turn to Exodus chapter 20. Um, It will come up on the screen. There we are. And this is um, where God gives his people, Israel, a blueprint of how to remain faithful to the Lord, to put God and his lordship above everything else. And you'll see as you turn to it, it's the Ten Commandments. We're not going to look at all of those today. I just want us to really get to grips with the first one in verse 3, as I believe it's crucial um, for us as we address the areas of life that hold us back from being wholehearted for Christ and his kingdom. So Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to read the first four verses. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. So the very first commandment there in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And the natural question of what do you mean no other gods is immediately answered in verse 4. You're not to make an image or an idol in the form of anything that looks like anything from in heaven or on the earth or waters below, which pretty much sums up anything and everything that we could be tempted to put our trust in or to give our heart to. 
The world readily offers us its culture, doesn't it, and the gods that we're expected to serve. Our televisions, advertising, the people around us, their expectations, our workplaces, they all promote the gods of appearance, wealth, performance, success, entertainment, the list goes on and on. So I want us today to consider the cultural strongholds that can squeeze their way into our hearts. Consciously or not, as soon as we look to these things for security or comfort or satisfaction or to give meaning or value to our identity, then we've elevated them to a godlike position and they're operating as the other gods that um, this chapter refers to. And I think that this commandment in verse 3 can be summed up as Jesus wants our whole hearts. He wants us to be as undivided for him as he is for us. There is no room for other gods or idols. And as we explore this, I'm going to ask three questions and they'll come up on the screen. Firstly, why is this so difficult? Why do we have this tendency to have other gods or idols in our hearts? Secondly, what are they? What are our idols? And thirdly, how do we get rid of idols? How do we ensure that our heart belongs to Christ alone, free from the distractions of the culture that we live in? So, question one, why is this so difficult? This is the so what question. Why does God even need to spell it out to us? Isn't it obvious that we're to worship only him, the one true God? Wasn't it obvious to the Israelites who God originally gave these commandments to through Moses. I think at first we can think perhaps we have little in common with the Israelites when God is having to say to them not to create something, to make something that looks like um, something in heaven or on earth. We imagine a carving of stone or wood. But actually the modern manifestations of idolatry are no less foolish and actually are just as harmful to our relationship with God. And if anything, they're harder to spot, often remaining hidden in our hearts. And the Israelites, like us, needed reminding that God will not tolerate the worship or acknowledgement of other gods. He will not share our heart. And to see why God spoke to the Israelites about this matter, I think it's helpful just to rewind slightly to the beginning of the book of Exodus, where we find a time in Israel's history when God's people are living in Egypt under the reign of a pharaoh who hates them and abuses them and enslaves them. And they cry out to God, and we know that God hears and answers them, and he decides he's going to set his people free. And he does this through Moses, who is actually a most unlikely candidate when you think about it, owing to the fact that he's killed someone um, and that he had problems with his speech. Um, but God chooses Moses so that everyone knows that the rescue was because of the grace of God and not the gifts of the person. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells him in Exodus 7, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. So far, so good. Who is the Hebrew God? The Lord. And what is the Israelites' priority? To worship him. The Bible tells us at this point that Pharaoh continually hardens his heart. He doesn't want the true God telling him what to do. He's in charge. He's his own God. And so God sends the plagues to Egypt, culminating in the killing of the firstborn sons, a foreshadow of what Romans 3 tells us. 
the wages of sin is death. But there is one exception, those who participate in the Passover. Just as Jesus takes the death penalty for sin in our place, the Israelites were commanded to kill a Passover lamb as a substitute and smear their doors with its blood. Death would then literally pass over them during this final, costly, heartbreaking plague. And so... The nation of Israel is set free. During the night, Pharaoh summons Moses and says, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. And so the Israelites gather up all their belongings in haste and they leave the country that has enslaved them for over 400 years. However, although the people of God are set free, by Exodus chapter 20, where we've just read, they are not living free. There's a battle going on for their identity as God's people, set apart with undivided hearts. They're stealing, committing adultery, they're not raising their children in the Lord, and they're worshipping false gods alongside the real God. Other things are creeping in and functioning as their God. They doubt the sufficiency of God. And so God speaks to them. So if we fast forward back to where we've just read in Exodus 20, before he even gives them the first commandment, he reminds them of who he is. Verse 1, I am the Lord your God. And then he reminds them what he's done, who brought you out of the land of slavery. God loves to set his people free. And free not to do what they want to do, but free to do what they were made to do, to worship the king. All life flows from this worship. So why do we, like the Israelites, have this tendency to worship other gods or idols? Well, firstly, I think there can be a difference between our functional God and our actual God. All Christians would say that we believe and we know that Christ is our saviour, not our career or wealth or family. But while Jesus can be our saviour in principle, other things can still maintain title to our hearts. The world tells us that in order to be successful and have meaning in life, we must devote our time and energy into our appearance or the accumulation of wealth or gaining success or favour in the workplace, often at the expense of others. And then these things can operate as a functional God as we let them dictate to us and we can end up ordering our life around them. And actually, this is the second reason why it's so difficult to keep our hearts free from other gods. We can let the pursuit of these cultural norms that everybody else is pursuing confuse our priorities and we can give our heart over to them. Jesus becomes just part of our list of priorities then, rather than being the centre of our life, through whom all else flows. Now, I am slightly obsessed with writing lists. If you know me well, you might know this. Um, So I write a to-do list most days, and I have been known to write a list of the lists that I need to make. Um, I also have lots of things to assist me in this list-making. So I love notebooks as well and pretty things that you can write on. And I have a pad that has uh, little boxes, so you can actually put a big teacher tick when you've completed the task, which I find very satisfying. Um, But one of the 
the things um, that actually has really stuck with me that somebody said to me as I was growing up um, was that you should never put Jesus on your to-do list. Now, many of you may not have been tempted to do this, but the way I work... As I was getting to know God, that was something that I did find helpful for someone to say to me. Um, And I think um, it kind of just illustrates really the point that I'm making about confusing our priorities. So putting spend time with Jesus on a list to be ticked off makes him one in a list of priorities. So to give God our whole heart means placing him right at the centre of life. So in practice, for me, that means bringing my list to him, letting him speak to me about how I spend my time, my money, asking for his spirit to guide me in the decisions I make, and being honest about my motives. And I just think together, as we seek to create this supernatural culture in which heaven comes to earth, it is crucial that our heart is free of the clutter of the things of the world, the things that we put at the top of our personal priority list. It's about keeping things simple. As someone once said, keeping the main thing the main thing. And that has to be Jesus. And the third reason that makes it difficult for us to maintain an undivided heart and why we have the tendency to have other gods or idols is because there's a battle going on for our identity. If the enemy can cause us to doubt God's goodness and our identity as children of a loving Heavenly Father, then we will be tempted to look elsewhere for satisfaction, fulfilment or purpose. Whilst Moses was receiving the commandments from God at the top of Mount Sinai, the Israelites got bored of waiting for him to come back down. And instead of trusting in the God that had freed them, they decided to look elsewhere. And they made their own God by just going around and collecting all the bling that they could find in the camp. And Exodus 32 tells us, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So we know the story. They went and they collected um, all their earrings. They got all their earrings from their daughters and their wives. And they made, they melted it down and made a golden calf that they then proceeded to bow down to and offer sacrifices to. And then they just went about eating and drinking. And the Bible says indulging in revelry. Sin has always had its origin in lies about God and lies about ourselves. We were made to understand the world around us through God's word. And our rebellion against God began when, encouraged by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, we questioned whether God's reign was really good. The serpent says, doesn't he, did God really say... We wonder, like Eve, if we'd be better off without him, or at best, bought on our own cultural comforts alongside Jesus, or a God that we can see and touch like the Israelites with their golden calf. Can he truly satisfy? Can I really find fulfilment in Christ alone? Life can unravel when we, intentionally or not, believe that we can find comfort, security, or rest in things other than God. And these idols are usually a reflection of a worship of self. We worship ourselves instead of worshipping Jesus. And even when we make an idol of other people, it's often because we um, crave their approval or fear their rejection. So 
That first question, why is it so difficult for us to maintain an undivided heart? Why do we have the tendency to let other gods creep in? Well, we let other things operate as our functional God alongside Jesus, our actual God. We can confuse our priorities and God gets shifted from his central place in our hearts. And we doubt God's goodness and our identity in Christ. And we look to other things to satisfy our hearts. So I want to move on to our second question now. What are our idols? Having established that we have these other gods in our hearts, let's just turn our attention to identifying what they are. And just by way of definition, an idol is something we seek to give to us, what only God can give. It can be anything that absorbs our heart or imagination more than God. Literally anything we run to for comfort, security, ultimately satisfaction. God longs to be the place that we run to, for it to be his presence we seek at all times and all places. And actually there are so many things that can can become idols in our lives and operate as the functional God that we've been looking at. Power, sex, the pursuit of leisure, entertainment, rest even, can confuse our priorities and take primary title to our heart. And I just want to pick up on a couple um, of the idols that I think we fall into the trap of allowing to become our functional gods. And the first is people. People can be an idol. Family, children, relationships. And if we've made an idol of people, it's not that we stop loving them, but as we honestly look at the place that they have, they hold in our lives, we must apply this first commandment in Exodus 20. Have they taken primary title to our heart? Have they become like other gods to us? Do we prioritise life around the pursuit of a relationship, around our children? Do these things motivate us rather than keeping Jesus the main thing at the very centre of life and letting him direct and lead us in these areas? And the second is money. Money can also operate as a functional God. And Jesus warned us of this. In Matthew 6, he speaks about storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust destroy. And Matthew 6.24 spells it out for us. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think if you want to look at what is operating as a functional God in your life, if you want to identify it, look at where you direct your money. Where do you invest it? What things of the world do we think we must have, we cannot live without? And as we follow the trail of where we direct our money, it can often lead us to what is operating as our functional God. And as we look to see if we have made a God of these things, I think it's helpful to ask ourselves what we believe about them. Do we see them as gifts from God to be given back to him, to be used as he desires? Or have these things become idols to us that generate false beliefs? And I've just got a few questions that I found helpful just as I've looked at this area and having a look and thinking about identifying some things that can operate as functional gods in my life. So asking ourselves questions such as, if I can't achieve this thing in my life, then it won't be valid. Or, since I've lost or failed this thing, then I can never be happy. 
Asking questions like, do I feel like I must have this thing to be fulfilled or significant? Or do I know and live in the fact that Christ is enough? Has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to my heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service? And to who or what do I look for life-sustaining stability, security or acceptance? And I think asking questions like this, really honestly before God, can tease out whether we serve God or idols. The desire to seek fulfilment from these functional gods, I think, is often fueled by cultural strongholds. And that's where I just want us to turn now. I talked about at the beginning how God's desire is for us to operate freely in the culture of his kingdom without these uh, trappings and distractions of the world that can divide our hearts from our devotion to Christ and his kingdom. And in describing South African culture to us a few weeks ago, Rob talked about how Africans are culturally so much more open uh, to spiritual things. Jesus is not the last resort. There is literally nowhere else to go. And Rob did talk about how this spiritual openness can present challenges too, however, in terms of distinguishing between Christ and superstitions and traditions of the past. So there's the danger that Jesus can simply become added on to this supernatural cocktail. But I think we too have our own cultural baggage that needs laying down if we are to adopt a supernatural worldview. And recognising worldly mindsets can help us in identifying idols in our lives and those things that we inadvertently allow to drive us and that seek to confuse our priorities. For example, our society puts tremendous emphasis and pressure on individuals to prove their worth through personal achievement. And I think this is a cultural stronghold. We are fed the lie that performance is everything. You must win. You must be on top to show that you're the best, to show your value and your worth. And this can manifest in our lives as self-reliance as we get pushed into using our limited resources instead of God's unlimited supply. And self-reliance and the striving for personal achievement is the complete opposite to God's kingdom value of grace. We know we cannot add a thing to our salvation, identity or self-worth. It is all gifted to us from our abundantly good God. And I'm sure many of you, like me, are monitored at work through performance management procedures. And this is just the way our culture works But it's not how God's kingdom culture works. And yet I know for me, I can so get drawn into that worldview and in the process, make an idol out of work. There have been times when I've just succumbed to this performance culture by getting really stressed out about a lesson observation or a target-setting meeting. And before I know it, I've made the approval of my school leadership team be the thing that motivates me, be the thing that brings me comfort. So the outcome of the lesson or the meeting is the thing that I seek rather than Christ. And my job then that I love, that is a good thing, at that point becomes a God thing. It operates as a functional God in my life. And for me, 
this performance, results-driven cultural stronghold needed challenging and laying down in order for me to adopt God's culture in the classroom where Jesus and his kingdom were first. And my expectations of success were not based on my achievements and my striving or my self-reliance, but on God and his power. And just a little example of this recently, just before Easter, um, I just had a day where the kids were just really chaotic. Um, I think it had been a windy day, if you know anything about kids and weather. Wind just sends them loopy. Um, And I just wasn't happy with the atmosphere in the classroom. And so just instead of sort of looking inward and thinking, oh, what can I do? What am I going to change? What am I going to do about this? I just prayed, Holy Spirit, come. And it was as though a blanket just fell on the kids and there was just this real tangible sense of peace and in it just came a real clarity in terms of who who to address and where to direct my attention and that's what I want more and more that's what I want to be operating out of rather than that self-reliance Rob referred to another cultural stronghold in a preach a few weeks back he talked about the culture of cynicism and the world's so naturally sceptical, skeptical, isn't it, and sort of distrusting. And Rob used the example, which I thought was great, just of graffiti on a wall that read, question everything, and then somebody underneath had written, why? And I think sometimes we can adopt this attitude in our encounters with God. We can feel the need to explain things rather than letting God be God. And it comes down to faith, doesn't it? What we really believe about God and his power. It's like the serpent again, questioning God's goodness. Questioning what God is able to do. Can he really heal? Can he really bring freedom in this area? And so it's important for us to identify that and lay down the cultural strongholds that can grip us, such as performance, self-reliance, cynicism, to turn away from them so that they're not given the power in our lives to fuel the service of other gods, such as work, reputation, appearance or knowledge. And so just in drawing to a close, I just want us to look at our final question. How do we get rid of idols? We've seen how our natural tendency is to give our hearts to worldly things that can operate as functional gods alongside our actual God. We confuse our priorities and we believe the lie that Christ is not enough. Are we in a hopeless state then? What are we to do about it? How do we get rid of these idols? Well, I want to leave you with two R's that I think will help us to apply the commandment in Exodus 20 when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and to help us to ensure that our hearts are given undividedly to the Lord. It's not hopeless. The first R is repentance. If we are setting our heart on other things, then God calls us simply to repent, to turn away from seeking approval, fulfilment or satisfaction from other gods. Proverbs 4 verse 23 tells us, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We must guard our heart from these things as we look to Christ alone to give us all that we need. Paul, when writing to the Colossians, describes what to fix our hearts on. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is non-negotiable. Our God wants all of us, just as he gave his whole self for us. And setting our heart on things above means repenting of the things we've allowed to take his place in our lives and recognising, rejoicing and resting in all that Jesus has done for us. As one writer has said, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. And the last R is remember. Remember who you are. I've spoken already about how Satan will get us to doubt that Jesus is enough and that we can be truly satisfied in him. He'll parade the things of this world as alternative gods, promising so much and yet they do not deliver. And in the end, the gods we serve become our masters. Peter says in 2 Peter 2 verse 19, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. We need to remember who we belong to and therefore who we are. The identity that we have been given is that of sons, not orphans. And so the good news is that as a son, I no longer have to do anything. Jesus has done it all for me. It is finished. He is sat at the right hand of the Father. So as the Holy Spirit convicts us of the other gods in our hearts, we repent and appeal to our identity as those who are now hidden in Christ. It's not about performance. I must stop this thing being a God to me. The work that was needed to maintain our rightness with God and enjoy his presence has been paid in Christ. So as we repent and lay down the idols of our hearts, we are free to live out of the fullness that Christ has purchased for us and the lavish generosity of the Father. We're not like little Oliver twisting God's arm and tentatively asking for more. Colossians 2 tells us we've been given fullness in Christ. We don't have to look elsewhere. Christ is enough. Only he can satisfy. Only in him can I find freedom so that I no longer have to strive for acceptance, fulfilment or purpose. So ensuring that God has our whole heart free from other gods is not something we have to strive to achieve. It's the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. It's his job changing us from the inside out. And he reveals Jesus to us as we see his kingdom at work around us. And we're drawn back to him, our first love, day by day. So with that in mind, I'd just really love to pray for us. Just wondered um, if we could stand... Um, And I'm just going to read a passage. As I was thinking about today, I just really felt um, that God led me to Isaiah 55. And just as we uh, just stand, just with our eyes closed, just speaking to God personally, I just want to read this over us. This is Isaiah 55, and the title of this um, chapter is Invitation to the Thirsty. I'm just going to read the first uh, couple of verses. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? 
Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you alone satisfy. Lord, we thank you that in you we have everything we need. Thank you that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've given us life and breath and everything else. And Lord Jesus, we know that if we're honest, sometimes we can go and have a go at buying money, spending money on things that are not bread, so we labour on things that don't satisfy. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would be specific with us again now, that you would just put your finger on those things that we have allowed to become functional gods, that we've allowed to push Jesus from that central place that we've kind of put on our priority list. And Jesus, we want to repent of those things. Lord, we acknowledge them and we turn from them. Jesus, would you take your rightful place in our hearts? Lord, we don't want to look for satisfaction and fulfilment. We don't want to seek our identity in anything other than you, Jesus. And Lord, we just thank you and we rest in our identity as sons. Thank you that you've not left us wanting. Thank you that we are not orphans. Lord, thank you that we can be completely satisfied in Christ. And so, Lord, we just look to you, Jesus. We come back to you as our first love and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.